Over the, uh, over the past couple of weeks, we have been in uh, Acts, back, uh, the, the back part of chapter 18 and chapter 19, which is where we're going to be today. So if you want to go ahead and, and get there, we'll, you'll be uh, ready here in just a minute when we go through the passage. Um, but we've been in the, the city of Ephesus. Uh, that's, where we, uh, that's where we find ourselves today. That's where we found ourselves over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and the story of the gospel moving into Ephesus is um, really kind of at face value. We don't see just how wild it is. But, it, but when you start thinking about the city and the context and the culture of Ephesus, it's a pretty wild story that the gospel moves into this city and the way it does. Um, and I just maybe wanted to give you some background on, on what the city looked like at the time so you can kind of understand what's going on, what the sights are like, what the smells are like, and what the people are like. Um, but Ephesus was the, the richest city uh, in this region of the Roman Empire. It was, it was a hub um, for all kinds of, of travel and, and commerce. The primary port in that region was, was at Ephesus, and so any, any commerce, any, any trading whatsoever funneled through the city of Ephesus. And so you can imagine just the, the amount of people, the amount of traffic, and just the diverse culture. Um, it, it, it was multicultural in its, in its nature. It was multi-ethnic, and so it had just diverse groups of people, diverse races of people, and they were all kind of existing in this city. Um, it also, at this time, housed uh, the, the world's largest temple, uh, which was a temple that was dedicated to the goddess Artemis, and we, we read a little bit about that already. Uh, they also call her Diana, but it was, it was the, the goddess Artem, Artemis who, uh, who the temple was dedicated to, and there was a statue of Artemis inside this temple that this statue was actually carved out of a meteorite that fell from the sky. So you can imagine these people are like, this is a god. It come from the sky. And so they, they worshipped uh, this goddess Artemis uh, at this temple. It was also host, and, and Joey kind of alluded to this uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was host to the, the world's largest library at that time. Um, it had uh, just... Uh, a, a, it ended up, uh, I think Joe, uh, Joey told us, it, it, it set us back, or maybe, maybe it caught on fire and, uh, and uh, set us back a, a, a little, probably about 100 years or so in just knowledge and writings, but had the world's largest library. Uh, this place was an epicenter for knowledge. It was an epicenter for uh, intellect um, and, and an epicenter for people who were all from, coming from all over the world to, to come and to debate what they know and debate what they believe. And so it was... Uh, education um, and knowledge was was esteemed highly uh, in this in this region, and we, we, we arrive at, at chapter nineteen and, and the book of Acts. Uh, Paul is going to enter into Ephesus um, with the gospel, but remember he 's not the first one who entered into Ephesus with the gospel. Remember we met this guy named man named Apollos, and he was there, and he was preaching first. Um, and I can't stress this point enough. We, we've talked a little bit about Apollos' situation where he had kind of an incomplete gospel, not a wrong gospel, just incomplete. Um, and so he had to go through this um, conversation with uh, Priscilla and Aquila about you know, the true gospel. Um, but nonetheless, uh, just a ferocious evangelist. He, he shared everything he knew about the gospel. Uh, even once he was corrected and, 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 and had the whole gospel, uh, it, that even lit his fire even more. And he just kind of became this great evangelist. And what I want to reinforce, and what we've seen throughout the book of Acts, and I've pointed it out to us a couple of times already, is that when the gospel usually spreads to an area first, it's not by the apostles. It's not by the super holy religious people. It's by normal, everyday people. 
Every time we see the gospel kind of birth in, in, a, in a new part of, of the region, in a new part of the world in the book of Acts, it's always come at the hands of just regular, normal everyday people. And I can't stress that enough. Like, I really need for the welder and the nurse in the room. I really need for the engineer and the cashier and the banker and the teacher and the waitress and the homemaker. I need you all to get this, that you are the tip of the spear. Not the, not the professional holy man. Not the seminary trained guy. Everyday, normal people, where you are in your context, where God has placed you, you are the tip of the spear when it comes to the gospel. And so God has you in a place, and he has a purpose for you in that place. So you might find yourselves in some type of vocation. You might be a teacher. You might be a waitress. You might be a homemaker. But that is not your primary calling. Your primary calling is a disciple in that place, right? And so if you're a student in school, your primary objective on campus is the gospel. And by God's grace, you get an education in the process, but your education is not primary at your campus. Teachers, as difficult as this world has made it, your primary purpose isn't just to give a kid education. It's to show them the love of Jesus through the gospel. To the degree that you're able to do that, to the, to the degree of risk that you're willing to take for that. And in the process, a kid gets to feel loved by an adult and gets an education through, through your, gift and, your gifts and your talents. And so I can just kind of go on down the list. Like your primary purpose in this world as a believer in Jesus Christ is the gospel. That is primarily and, and, and the highest priority. And so for two years here, uh, we, we've rocked on. If you saw how the, how the verses closed out last week, uh, the, the, we, we've gone on two years now that Paul and the disciples have been in Ephesus. And, and man, they have, they have gone on fire. Like they are, they are making movement in this world um, and they've been so fierce at declaring and demonstrating the gospel that the, the text would say all the residents of Asia heard the gospel. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let it be said of us that every single person in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, which was about the size of Asia at that time, would hear the gospel because of our obedience and because of our love for this world. Let, it, let that be known about us, that we would be that on purpose about the gospel, that urgent about the gospel. And so looking in our text, at, uh, chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 11. We're picking up where we left off last week. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of their house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we come to you um, this morning. Father, and I'm asking for you to do a miracle with your word today. I'm asking you to pierce the hearts of those in this room who are complacent, those who are passive, or those who don't even know who you are. Jesus, I would pray that this word would go out in power, and that, Father, if there was any words that left my mouth that wasn't from you, that it would be burned up before it reached the hearts of these people. God, we need your word and your word only, and so would you do that for us today? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So reading through this text, I had this question this week, and, and I don't know if you wondered. I, I always have these questions when I read through text. That's a good habit for us to have. Um, not have all the answers, but have a lot of questions uh, that we should seek and answer. Um, and the, one of the questions I had as I read through this text was, what in the world does this have to do with us? And how in the world am I going to communicate this to people? Like, okay, there's witchcraft going on, and there's exorcisms going on, and how in the world does that apply to us today? And I hope, I hope that kind of question would come up to you guys, and maybe like, how in the world is Blake going to make this applicable to us today? Um, so we're introduced to two groups of people that I see in this text. We're introduced to these itinerant Jewish exorcists. Um, now, I know some of you are probably saying, finally, we get to my stuff. We get to the stuff that I'm interested in, right? But I, I wouldn't think that many of you would be, but maybe you're in the room and that's your, your part. You're, you're jazzed about where we are today. We're talking about exorcisms and things. But for the most part, I would say that the people in this room and the people in our city won't resonate with this text. They won't resonate with, with these groups of people that we're looking at today, uh, that they're not normal as far as we're concerned. But the other group is a, is a group of Ephesian converts, a, a group of people who've, who've seen the glory of Jesus, who've met Jesus, and were saved out of witchcraft, who, who were saved out of occult practices, to the point where this group would experience such radical conversion that they would burn an equivalent of about six to seven million dollars worth of writings, worth of library stock. That's, that's about what the equivalent is today. That's what kind of radical conversion that they experienced when they met Jesus, and so what does this have to do with us? What does this have to say to us over 20 centuries later, over 6,000 miles away from where this moment occurred in the deep South Bible Belt community of Sulphur, Louisiana? What in the world does this have to do with us? And I believe the story of these two groups, of this Jewish exorcist who are trying to borrow someone else's faith uh, and, and those involved in witchcraft, uh, with, with this burning faith that kind of just reframes and reshapes their life around Jesus might be the most helpful story, might be the most helpful uh, moment in Scripture to address a crisis that we currently stand in as the church, and that is cultural Christianity. It's a crisis that's, that the church is faced with today. It's this idea of, I can be a Christian because of all of these other things that don't necessarily have anything to do with the gospel. It's a cultural Christianity. And we're going to get into detail about that, but I believe that this text can give us a lot of, um, a lot of answers to how we deal with this. And when I say cultural Christianity, I'm referring to the Christianity that would claim certain marks and certain tenets of Christianity, of what it means to be a Christian, and at the same time, it would just completely deny the power of the gospel. It's cultural Christianity. That's why I refer to it as a crisis. It's, it's void of the gospel. 
This first group, this itinerant Jewish exorcist uh, group of people, like maybe a question to ask um, by show of hands. This is, we're going to participate for a minute, so we're going to go back and forth. By show of hands, have you ever been in like a, a, like a fist fight, like a fight before? Raise your hand if you've been in a fight before. Okay, like where, where like you were swinging hands at somebody, pulling some hair, swinging some boots. That, I'm talking about a real fight. I, it's okay. It's just, this is a safe place. It's a safe place. We're not going, we're not going. We all, we're all made new in Christ, okay? Um, maybe another question to follow up with that is, how many of you have fought, have lost one? All right, all right. So we've got a couple tough guys in the room. Uh, I've, I've lost fights before, right? Um, now, by show of hands, how many of you have lost so bad that you, you lost your clothes in the fight? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think that. Like, I've, I've been in some pretty brutal matches before, but I left with my pants on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I wasn't beat that bad. And you, it, it's, look, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, I, I've talked to guys before, and it's mainly guys. I'm not, I, you know, I'm not trying to separate. I know, girls, you guys are pretty fierce, too, and, and you, you can, I wouldn't fight most of you in the room, but I, 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 most of the guys I would talk to about fighting, a lot of times, um, it was obvious that they got really like they, their trash got beat out of them real bad, uh, and they would be like, "Yeah, but you know, if I would have did this, or if I'd have had, you know, if we do, if we'd go again, I would do this, or if I catch that guy again, I'm going to do this." You know, they always talk really, really big, but reality is, they just got their butts whipped, man. Like that's that's what it was, um, and and it's inarguable here that these guys got the trash beat out of them. I mean, they left with no clothes. All right, like. And, and I love the way the text goes. Let me go back to it and show you. It says that they, they, they fled out of the house naked and wounded. If you get the trash beat out of you so much that your clothes are no longer attached to you, it's obvious that you're wounded. You're, you don't need to even write this down, but I love Luke puts it in there just in case you don't think they really got the mess beat out of them. They don't have any clothes on and they're, they're wounded. They're, they're bleeding everywhere. And so the reason these guys are inarguably dominated, the reason that they, 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 there's no question, no contest whatsoever that they just got the snot beat out of them was because they tried to borrow a faith that wasn't their own, right? It wasn't their own. You've seen how they, how they went about that. And, and so now it's becoming a little bit more relevant to us here, Sulphur Community Church, in the heart of the Bible Belt, how this could possibly be relevant to us, that, that we can live off of borrowed faith, that we can live off of someone else's relationship with Jesus. And borrowing faith, trying to, trying to claim the benefits of Jesus, trying to, to, to claim what Jesus can give without life in Jesus, without my faith and my, my whole life being submitted to Jesus, will constantly leave you defeated. It will constantly leave you exposed, just like these guys were. They're seeing the power of Jesus. They're hearing about all the miracles and all the things that, that's going on, that, that, that Paul's doing amazing things, that Christ is doing like, great things through him, that demons are being cast out, that people who are sick are being healed. They're hearing all of these things, and they're seeing the work of Jesus Christ. And without any personal reference, without any personal experience with the grace of Jesus, or even lives that are submitted to Jesus, lives that follow Jesus or the lordship of Jesus, they, they approach this demon-possessed guy on the borrowed faith of Paul. And they're, they're associating with something that really looked right to them and seemed right to them, but had really nothing to do with them. They had no experience with. And they would say, I adjure you by Jesus. 
whom Paul preaches, whatever that means, instead of saying, I adjure you by Jesus, the one who's transformed my life, the one who is Lord over me and all of creation, the one who controls everything, the one who is all-powerful, the all-knowing, the one who I know. Instead, it's the name of Jesus that I've heard about. It's the name of Jesus that I've seen or heard other people talk about, who's done some really cool stuff for other people. And the conclusion here is that borrowed faith will always leave you exposed. It will always leave you broken and wounded. And it will always allow the trash to get beat out of you. That you can't survive on someone else's faith. You can't survive on someone else's relationship with Jesus. And now it's extremely relevant to the moment you and I are currently living in, right? In this city in which we are lived, in which we are called to serve, there are, po- there are pockets of people all over our neighborhood where borrowed faith, Borrowed relationship is much more common than an active, life-changing, city-shaping relationship with Jesus. It's so much more common. And I would even say it's probably common among this group of people. If I were to get extremely honest with some of you, are you living off of someone's borrowed faith? Are you borrowing someone's faith? Do you not have a, 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 a true relationship with Jesus Christ where you are walking in faith and walking in obedience with Him, but that just the, the circle of people around you excites you because they have a relationship with Jesus and you're just going to roll with that. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Can I just simply ask this? What, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like What makes someone a Christian? Very common answers that I get that you would probably even give me if I were to ask them. Well, you go to church, right? Blake, I'm a Christian because, because I attend such and such a church. Been, been attending that church my whole life. I can't tell you how many times that answer comes my way when I ask that. Or you know what, Blake? Uh, it's, um, I'm like a seventh generation Baptist, Right? Uh, my my great 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 grandfather was was a Baptist, and I'm a Baptist, and 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 it's just been that way, man. That's that's our family heritage. I grew up in the church, Blake. A real popular one in our city, in our context, in our neighborhood right now. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I'm well, I'm Catholic. Okay. What does it mean to be a Christian, Blake? I, I've been baptized. I was a VBS, and and and. Uh, they said something about some ABCs, and so I recited those things, and then they put me in water, so I'm a Christian. It, even demographics. Well, by God, I'm a Christian. I'm American. Hello? Like, that's obvious. I'm, I'm in, I live in the West, and so I'm Christian, right? Like, these are, these are answers that people will actually give when you start asking, what does it mean to be a Christian? And this might be the most dangerous thing that we face as a church as we try to reach out and make much of God in our neighborhood and in our city and to to all peoples in the world this is the constant threat to the church cultural Christianity you know it's hard to convince someone to become a Christian when they're convinced they're a Christian it's much more difficult than talking with someone who just says I reject the gospel I reject God I reject it all I'd rather start there 
I'm giving an answer to the most definitive question that you can ever ask in all of your life. What must one do to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? Given an answer that, that, that falls short of the real answer is very, very dangerous. And Jesus would answer the question. He would say there's only one real answer to the question. Because Jesus was asked that question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he told a guy, he said, you know what? To be a Christian, you must be born again. That's how he answered that question. He'd say you must, you must go to church. You must belong to the right family and have the right pedigree and, and, and affiliate with the right religious sect of people. But you must be born again. And it's interesting that if you read any news, mainstream media, the general public, they would distinguish Christians from born-again Christians. Like there's, there's this group of Christians, but then there's this group of Christians. Right? And they define it as if, as if they, uh, they understand born-again Christians, they're, that there's some type of brand or, or subset to Christ, Christianity. And they just kind of say that's a, that's a certain part of of Christianity, and even people that I, that I know and love would say, yeah, well, I'm Christian, but I'm not that Christian. Like, I'm not the holy roller type Christian. I'm just like, I know God type Christian. As if there are levels of Christianity. It's, 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 it's foolish to think about, but to be born again is to experience this beautiful miracle of Jesus Christ through the hearing and the believing of the great news of the gospel. Like this miracle that takes place, this transaction that takes place when I hear the gospel and respond with faith, believing that Jesus has covered my sin on the cross and that my hope is found in the resurrection that he brought about through his power, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's great news because here's the deal. We all were once enemies to God. Every single one of us at one time were enemies to God or even today you may be an enemy toward God. We reject him as our king. We've committed high treason against the king and we've done this by going our own way, by, by picking our own God or even trying to become our own God instead of worship, worshiping the one true creator, God, and instead of executing justice on us. Instead of executing justice on us, he instead sends his son and executes justice on his son. Instead, take his son, Jesus, taking our place, satisfying the wrath of God in our place. And so you see we're at this critical moment now in culture. We're at this critical moment now in, in this season where there are tons of answers. Tons of answers that we would give to the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And lots of those answers, if not most of them, have nothing to do with the heart of the gospel. That's where we're at. That's where we're at in society. And there's many, many, many faithful, good-hearted Christian people who would give an answer that comes short, short of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. And so what makes this moment so critical is that there are people who are going to come through those doors. There are people who are coming through those doors who have valid questions. They have valid concerns about life. Some of you are hitting 
the, the, the three-year-old stage with your family. Some of you are looking toward it right now. We learned as parents um, that there was this thing called the terrible twos. And, and, and through parenthood, one of the things that we learned is that the twos weren't near as terrible as the threes. The threes were way more terrible. Like, we needed some exorcism to happen in our house once the three-year-old showed up. We, we thought, man, the, okay, man, the two-year-old thing, we're done. Like, that was tough, but we hear that that's where it's at, man. That's where the, that's where the terror is at. Um, but when we got to three, man, and he ratcheted it up. When I say he, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> three years old, man, it was rough. It was, it was really rough. And here's the deal. People are coming through those doors and they're needing answers. What do I do with this? Right? I need help parenting. We have no idea what we're doing. We woke up this morning and this other thing exists in our house and we don't know what to do with it. And so they show up to these doors looking for answers, right? Looking for support, looking for people who could kind of help them, looking for advice, looking for experience. We have people who will come through those doors with their marriages absolutely on fire, just burning down, can't speak words to one another, looking for help. Marriage isn't easy as we thought it was going to be. It didn't look anything like the notebook. And we need help. We need someone to help us with this. And so we have those people who come through the door. We have those people who come through the door, and I might be getting in your business a little bit, who are saying, you know what? I've been trying to find the right guy or the right girl. I've been doing the club scene. I've been going to the parties. I've been doing all the things. And I'm sick of that. I'm looking for someone who's not crazy, which I can't promise you that here. Less crazy. I'm looking for someone less crazy. I'm looking for stability. I'm looking for a good guy. I'm looking for a good girl. And so you show up here looking for that kind of community, looking for good friendships. And you're, you're looking for a place to, to find those people who are going to come through the door. You may have come through the door that way. There, by the grace of God, will, people who, will be people who come through the door who are just ravaged with addiction who are looking for some kind of stability, some kind of support as they try to fight off their addiction. It might be you. You might be in here, and that's how you got here. Praise God that you're here. I'm so grateful that you're here. You might be looking for a place to exercise your social justice, justice passion. Like, I want, to, I want to make a big deal in my community. I want, to, I want to do for the good of my neighbor. I want to go and make a difference in this world. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you, I am humbled by the fact that you would see this place as a place that would support you in that. We want to support you in that. And I'm so grateful that there are people here, these people in this room who are willing to support you. You got a jacked up marriage. You have no idea what to do with this thing that just turned three. Looking for some decent community, decent social circle of friends. I'm grateful that you've thought of this place. And these issues are very, very, very important to you. As a couple, as parents, as a single guy or a single girl or someone who has a burning passion, they're... they're extremely important, and they are a great place to begin your journey with Jesus.
This is a terrible place to end your journey with Jesus. Terrible place. I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm so thankful that we will have people who will come and see this place as a support mechanism, a place where they can feel loved and cared for and not judged and not condemned, but pointed to Jesus, healed, restored, find community. But that is not where it ends. That is a terrible place for it to end. These are all good desires, but at the end of the day, without being born again, without having Jesus as the center of your life, you're going to miss the peace. You're going to miss the freedom and you're going to miss the harmony and you're going to miss the community that you're, that you're looking for. You're going to miss the victory that you're looking for. And without Jesus, this cultural faith, this cultural Christianity, it's going to leave you broken. It's going to leave you exposed. It's not going to fix your problem. It won't fix your problem. A well-behaved child who hasn't been offered to the Lord will not address her deepest need. And so you bring her here and put her in kids' church, try to put her in a place where it's stable and she can be well-behaved, without Christ, her problem won't be addressed. A good marriage without Jesus will only bring disappointment and discouragement. Jesus has to be the center of your marriage. It has to be the thing that you talk about the most with your spouse. Not the problem with the child, not the problem with the finances, but Jesus has to be the center of your marriage. Immersing yourself in a Christian circle. Listen to me. Single guy and single girl, you immerse yourself in a Christian circle, you will constantly feel lonely and on the outside if you don't have Jesus. That's not going to fix the problem. It's a great place to start. It's a crummy place to end. Victory over an addiction is no victory at all. If it's not being submitted to the great victor who can defeat anything. And all the good works in our neighborhood, all the good works in the world, we can plant a thousand churches and send a million missionaries, spend a billion dollars. It will not affirm your purpose and it will not purchase God's grace for you. It will not do that. Only Jesus can and Jesus has purchased it for you. It has been purchased for you. And, and your next step is to believe. To be born again. That's what Jesus would say. You must be born again. You must, you must put your faith in the finished work of Jesus. You must know that God has done the work for you. And so now can you honestly answer the question? Are you a Christian? Based on the way Jesus would answer that question, are you a Christian? Have you been born again? Or have you been rolling with borrowed faith? You just grew up in church and that's just kind of what you know and what you do. And if you can't answer that question with a Jesus-informed response, may I lovingly say, stop calling yourself a Christian. Stop it. It's no good for the kingdom. It's no good for the church it dishonors the work of Jesus Christ on the cross when you just align yourselves with Christianity because it's convenient, because it's the popular thing to do. And stop trying to borrow someone else's faith and relationship 
as a means to some end. Like, I need to get a good marriage, and so, so I'm going to hang out with my Christian friends. Or, you know what, I, need, I don't know what to do with my kids, and so there's this Christian family who lives next door. I'm going to start hanging out with them and maybe figure that out. Stop doing that. There's this second group, the Ephesian converts. These two groups we see in this, the second group. There's a stark difference between these itinerant Jewish exorcists and these Ephesian converts. The exorcists, they've attempted to use Jesus as a means to their end. They, they've attempted to, to use Jesus as a means to gain power, as a means to gain authority, as a means to, to advance their career as exorcists. It's a, it's a it's a good thing if you're an exorcist and you're able to cast out demons, right? That's a, that's a critical part of being an exorcist, right? And so if they can pull this off by borrowing some of what Jesus can do, borrowing some of his power, it's going to help them in career advancement. And the Ephesian converts, they aren't trying to use Jesus as a means to get all the things that they think they need to be happy. That's not what they're after. As a matter of fact, they've given up everything that they thought was bringing them happiness and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. And instead, they've embraced Jesus as the ultimate end to their joy and the ultimate end to all of their happiness. They've forsaken the things that they, were, they thought they needed to be happy, to be stable. In verse 17, it would say, they, This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both the Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, meaning to lift up, to praise, to put, to put Jesus at the ultimate center of their lives. That made, he has made the most important thing in their lives, not the things that they're into, not their magic, not their, not their uh, careers, uh, not any self-advancement, uh, uh, self but Jesus Christ alone. They extolled the name of Jesus. And now look at the difference in their reaction to the power of Jesus. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's the promise of our book, in, uh, the book, in, uh, book of Acts. That's the promise that we've been given. That regardless of all the things that are going on, the word of the Lord is going to advance. The gospel will move forward. So these exorcists are trying to, to use Jesus as a magic equation. They're trying to use Jesus to, to get what they want, which is the power and the authority over demons. Jesus is a means to their end. You understand that? That's what, they, that's what they, they are using Jesus for. And these Ephesian converts who were immersed in this culture, they were immersed in this culture of witchcraft and, and magic. They extol Jesus as the greatest value and, and the greatest treasure of greatest worth. And their response is to burn everything that they know. Burn everything that they have. Burn all their magic. They see Jesus as infinitely more worthy than anything that they could ever possess. That's, that's what it means to be born again. That's what it looks like. That's the response to being born again. It's to forsake all else and put Jesus at the center of your life. Are you a Christian? Have you been born again? Does your life look like that? If you can't be honest, stop calling yourself a Christian. We don't need your help in this crisis of cultural Christianity. 
So magic was the, the bending and the manipulating of reality. That's what magic is, right? You think of a magic trick. What's real, I'm trying to disguise as something else. I'm trying to bend it. I'm trying to manipulate it. I'm trying to make you see something different than, than reality. And true faith is seeing what is real, understanding what reality is, embracing reality, and conforming my life to it. Do you see the difference now? That's, that's the difference. So these, these exorcists, they saw Jesus as a way. And, and these, these converts see Jesus as the way, right? That's the, that's the big difference. He's, let me tell you this. If you come through the doors today because your marriage is in the tank, Jesus is not a way to fix your marriage. He is the way to ultimate satisfaction that will fix your marriage. If you came in the doors today looking for parenthood advice, Jesus is not a way to make you a better parent. He is the one true only way to do that, to keep him at the center of your home, the center of your family. And when you understand and embrace this truth and reality and are born again, when you see Jesus as ultimate and you, and you put your faith in him, the only move that you have at that point is to cut the ropes and burn the ships. That's, that's your move. I know that's not a popular one, guys, but listen to me. Is Jesus more worth, is worth more, is he worth more than anything else in your life today? Does your life communicate that? Does your actions communicate that? Does the way you raise your children communicate that? Does the way you treat your wife and the way you treat your husband communicate those things today? Or does it just look like every other person? Every other broken marriage, every other misunderstanding of parenthood and every other addiction. And I just, I have Jesus. But he's not powerful enough to deal with this, and nor is he even at the center of this. And this is what Paul was talking about when he's writing to the Philippian church. He's writing to the church at Philippi and he says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. You want to know what it looks like to be born again? There it is. There it is. Counting all things as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. I count my life as worth nothing, no value. Nothing that I have is worth anything without Christ. He is all and in all. How do I get there? How do you get there? How do we get to that place where Paul was when he penned those words? That I count everything as loss. It's what we talked about earlier. Your life has to be bent and adjusted and conformed to the truth and reality of Jesus. Instead of trying to bend and adjust your reality to fit the desires and wants and try to use Jesus as as a means to do that. I want to keep everything that I have going on and I want to add some Jesus into it, right? And so I'm going to bend all I can and manipulate all the people I can and all the stuff that I have so that Jesus can kind of fit in this thing that I have going on here. He's a means to your end, not your end. And that's what has to change. Ultimate reality isn't just a concept. It isn't just an idea. Ultimate reality is a person. He's Jesus. The Son of God is a reality. And he willingly 
put on flesh and blood. He willingly moved into your neighborhood. He took on your sin and my sin, and he, and he embraced it as his own. He carried it to the cross to see that it was justified in Christ. He served for our rebellion. He overcame death. He overcame the grave. These are the songs that we, this is the song that we were singing this morning. That he gave us hope and future in the resurrection for eternity. And he welcomes you who are willing to lay down your manipulative religion, your moralism, your striving to behave well. He's inviting you to lay all of it down, forsake all of it, and receive the grace of God in him. That's the invitation. That's what he wants. And I'm going to guess that many of you are not going to walk out of here today and, and go home and concoct a spell on your boss. I'm going to guess that most of you aren't going to go and recite some magical incantation against an enemy. I'm guessing. There may be some. But I'm guessing there's not a ton of you who are going to go and try to use magic and try to use spells to bend reality to fit your will. But there are a ton of us who are trying to conform reality to our will with moralistic religion, with, with, with good behavior and with playing games with God and playing games with each other. There's a ton of us who will do this. That we will leave this place and we will say, I went to church today, therefore God has to bless me or things have to go my way. I, I read my Bible today, and so God has to show some favor on me. A lot of us will do this. And I love the picture we have in our passage today of how much freedom can be found in Christ, how much freedom these Ephesian converts have found in Jesus. They're able to confess their, fin, their sins and divulge of their practices, right? They, they, they confess to God, here's where I've gone wrong, and, and I'm forsaking, I'm divulging everything that I was into. I'm, I'm, I'm kicking my past out of the way. I'm no longer there. I'm yours, Jesus. They're able to step into the light because the light and the life of Jesus has cleansed them and healed them from the darkness. And so let me just be as simple and clear as if I, if I haven't been as simple and clear, can I try it one more time before we close? Jesus is not a spell. He's not, he's not a technology or some kind of magic to get you what you want. He's not a way for you to manipulate reality to fit your desires. He's not a way for you to get your perfect family or spouse or circle or friends without full submission to him, without him being the center of everything. So don't come here and say, I want to hang out with Christians because it, it feels like you guys kind of got it together when it comes to families. And so maybe if I hang around here, this, the same thing will happen to me. Do you see what your end is? Your end is a good family. That's a terrible place to end. Your end is a well-behaved child. That's a terrible place to end. Your end is to be free of some addiction. And that's a terrible place to end. And there's no freedom there at all. Without Jesus Christ being the center of your life. Not the center of someone else's life. Jesus is not a means to your deepest desires. He is the end to your deepest desires. The satisfaction. The desires, the longings that you have. 
can only be fully met in Jesus. Not in your money, not in your possessions, not in your spouse, not in your children, not in your home. Jesus. Being a born-again Christian means you've opened your life to Jesus. To bend your desires and will to align with what's real and what's true. To be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Not conformed to the world, but transformed by the gospel. Are you a Christian? Can you give a biblical answer? One that Jesus would say, have you been born again? And we don't, we don't do like um, altar calls and invitations here ever um, because of the crisis of cultural Christianity primarily. But we're always, we're always open and willing and eager to pray with you and to help you process the gospel, process where you are with Jesus. And so if that's you today, I'm going to be back there in the back just hanging out. And if you want to come and, and pray, have a conversation, I'd love, to, I'd love to be there for you. But primarily, I, just, I really want you to answer the question. Are you a believer? Are you, or have you been living off of borrowed faith? Have you been living off of a, a heritage of faith? Ninth generation Presbyterian. Are you a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? That's the only Christianity that exists. So if you can't definitively answer that question, I'm going to invite you today to... Consider that reality of putting your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he has done what you are striving so hard to do, and that it's all an affront to who he is and what he's done on the cross. He's inviting us all to just lay down our arms and submit because he's a good king. He loves us. He's given his life for us. And he is where our ultimate joy and satisfaction will be met. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word that gives us the, the truth and the reality that first of all, Father, it's not unlike us to borrow faith. It is not completely out of the question that, Father, we've aligned ourselves with some kind of Christianity that um, our parents said they have, some kind of Christianity that we grew up hearing about, some kind of Christianity that we've even recognized in other people's lives but hasn't become a reality to us. Father, I know that um, we're all capable of, of going there. So, Father, I, I pray today that your word will illuminate the reality in our hearts whether we truly do believe that you are Christ, the Son of God who was sent on behalf of sinners and rebels like us, So it is with a, a great hope and a great expectation that the promise that you gave us in the very beginning of time that you were sending a, a Savior, one who would deliver us from the bondage of sin, one who would give us freedom 
that we so desperately seek for in so many different ways. Father, we're looking for it in our healthy marriages and we're looking for it in all these crazy places knowing that it's only found in you, Jesus. And that promise is still extended to us today. Father, I pray that today would be a day for us to uh, stop and remember who we are and remember whose we are. And God, your kindness would lead those of us who need it so desperately to repent. Of living off of borrowed faith, living off of someone else's joy and happiness, trying to tap into power that is not ours to tap into, but it's only given to those who put their faith in you and have been embodied with the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, I am pleading with you this morning that if there's one in this room who's been confronted with the reality that they are not a born-again believer, Father, would you radically transform their hearts this morning? Would you would you show yourself as all-beautiful and all-powerful? Would you reveal the hope that is found in Christ? Father, through the power of your Spirit, would you enable them to run to you? To cut the ropes and burn the ships of their past and run wholeheartedly to you, counting all things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing your Son, Jesus. That be true for some today, Father. For those of us as a church, Father, I pray that this would be a time of uh, renewal. God, we're in this rhythm of just kind of showing up and doing our thing week to week. But Father, I pray that you would radically interrupt our business as usual. And that you would mobilize us, that you would that you would cause our feet to walk in the direction of the broken and the hurt and the addicted and hopeless. With the message of hope that we've been given, that we've received, that we've placed our faith in. And Jesus, you come to say that you love us so much, God, that you sent your only son so that we could be born again into this relationship. Father, let what we believe in turn into action. Let that start with me today. Let that start with us today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.